Welcome to The Beauty of Horror, a podcast dedicated to exploring the unsettling beauty found within our favorite genre. Each episode, I will sit down with a different guest to discuss a horror film they find particularly beautiful and why. I'm your host, Chandler Bullock, and today's guest is a horror writer, scholar, and speaker. You can find their written work on Cinespeak, the upcoming book entitled Transploitation, and their account on Medium. They will also be seen in the upcoming Mental Health and Horror documentary, so definitely check that out. Uh, they are both a Beauty of Horror alum from season one and a very good friend of mine, so it's my pleasure to give beautiful greetings to Danny Bethay. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be back on the show, and I'm so delighted that you asked to have me back, Chandler. Oh, it was no question in my mind. Uh, immediately, season two, was like, oh, I, I got to get Danny back on. I mean, <laughs> I had so much fun with our first episode that we discussed the double feature of Pan's Labyrinth and The Devil's Backbone, which was just a very rich discussion. And I was really happy when we found a way to do things a little experimentally this season as well, which we'll, we'll get into a little bit later. But uh, yeah, thank you so much for being back on. Before... We begin our discussion. I do like to kick off each episode with a quote that I feel relates to the topic. This can be from philosophy, filmmakers, or elsewhere in the interwebs, basically. And today's quote is as follows. Beauty as an objective property of things is apprehended through the delight we take in simply knowing them as they are. It is primarily by means of the senses of sight and hearing that we become acquainted with objects in their individuality and derive a spontaneous pleasure in our encounter with them. I will reveal who said this a little bit later. First, Danny, welcome back, of course. And, you know, in season one, we briefly discussed how you got into horror and what the genre means to you. So the only question I can think up at the moment for a repeat is uh, what keeps you coming back then? I know, you know, horror falls into what a lot of people call it genre filmmaking, that, that wide umbrella of you know, science fiction, fantasy, and horror tend to kind of go together. And I know that you are into a, a pretty wide range of storytelling as well but is there something about horror that kind of keeps you coming back to it more often what um in recent years and i i think i've written about this in a lot of my pieces is the catharsis that i find in the genre hmm. the storytelling that happens there that frequently doesn't happen in other uh genres of film and obviously, we're, you know, the film we're going to get into a little bit later on is an intertwined horror historical piece. And more than anything, I, I enjoy the genre because it's always uh, treading new ground and kind of plotting new territory as the, uh, as the decades have gone by that the genre seems like it's a space, at least in my personal opinion, that doesn't really have any reins on it per se that mm -hmm. between I mean sure you have your big studio releases but you also have you know your smaller film festival platforms uh indie indie places to watch films I mean shutter I mean kind of like the space is is wide open and it seems like it's growing all the time and it's a community like like no place else to be honest um like you'll find 
every age, like race, gender that you can think of that loves horror. Like it's such an open space, truly. That's a great way to put that, that open space. It's true that when I see the the different pockets of communities you can get with say like anime, science fiction and, and, and other genres, mm-hmm. that although of course you always have a portion where people will like things for different reasons. So you can discuss your love of something with somebody else and and share a feeling, but you might actually be talking about something entirely different on a detail level. I have noticed that with horror, it does seem to be that kind of open space and open book in terms of this gradient of ideologies and sensibilities that kind of permeate within it, probably due to how the genre expresses and portrays these different you know, types of viewpoints, basically. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think that that might be a thing there, that it, 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 it's a genre that doesn't shy away from anything, as you're saying. Mm-hmm. I like that you put it. There's no reins on it. And uh, I have to wholeheartedly agree with that. And so you mentioned that you've written about the catharsis of horror. Then, Is there any film out there, or a couple films maybe even, that you find particularly cathartic and, and perhaps we can explore maybe the reasons for that? Um, I know I've written frequently about Beloved as a film and even as a text. Um, mm-hmm. Not directed by a woman, but what the film explores into from Toni Morrison's text is is really like deep. Um, if If you're not familiar with it or for the listeners, it's a it's a ghost story. It's a historical piece. It's post uh, slavery North America. A woman who was forced to do something tragic and terrible so that her daughter wouldn't experience the horrors of enslavement. But the ghost of the child, you know, comes back to haunt her and, and the mm. entire family. It's it's really deep. I don't want to get into it any more than that, but an amazing film that is getting quite a resurgence of eyes recently, which I greatly appreciate. And the book, obviously, even more so, Toni Morrison's like profound hand in writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say the next film, which actually came out the year I was born, ironically enough, mm. is Jacob's Ladder, which I've written about oh. as well. I, I love films that Um, If you watch Jacob's Ladder as well, you'll also find that it's an anti-war piece, Mm -hmm. that it's a mental health piece, that it's, it's, it's working on so many kind of different levels that every time I kind of watch it or rewatch it or read someone's view on it, that there's um, something more and more profound about it. And um, I even wrote a piece, I think it was called um, like 30 years later, Jacob's Ladder, like the Jacob's Ladder generation that so many of us similar to the main character are dealing with being young people in the time of an ongoing war. Like it seems like a never ending war, right? That our Mm -hmm. country is trying to perpetrate and reel young people into, into a, you know, (sighs) a killing machine that we don't want to be a part of and thinking that people will be okay when they come back and try to quote unquote assimilate back into the real world and you've been exposed to a surreal world. So that's what I love about the (laughs) film. It's this overlapping, just 
roller coaster really um it's a drug trip for sure so <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> yes it is i mean it's influenced a lot of other films and games and, and mm-hmm. media as well due to the visuals as you say the drug trippiness of it yeah but as you're pointing out the purpose of it all is indeed to give you that unease and that feeling of questioning what does reality even mean especially mm-hmm. when you have been kind of been fed an alternative reality all the time, mm-hmm. basically. It's a very interesting reading for that, and I really appreciate that. And what I really appreciate here is you, we're getting to explore a bit more about how broadly horror addresses topics. Mm-hmm. Since, And I mentioned this in the previous episode uh, when I was talking with Joe Lipset that we also talked about how horror just seems to be the only genre, or at the very least, one of the few genres that just welcomes in all the other genres with it. And, you know, it, it can either assimilate or it can also just be a good companion to another genre's sensibilities so that you can have a good drama mixed in with a horror tale. You can have a good comedy, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And in this case, you know, that means that you can address a lot of things that are pretty profound and it not be what most people, I guess, would say is you know, like base horror, or, you know, whatever the mainstream idea of the genre would be, which, of course, is usually just very basically 80 slashers is kind of <laughs> what it boils down to for yeah. a lot of people is that it, it's always lighthearted and, and bloody and nasty. And we just revel in the excess. And of course we do. <laughs> That's really fun to do. But uh, there's way more to what it's capable of and what the genre is used for. So. Uh, I'm really happy to hear some more titles there that that do that. In fact, kind of like the title we're going to talk about today, if I may say so. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) A little segue there. Uh, I feel that we're kind of already touching upon it just a little bit. So please introduce to everyone what film we're talking about today. Gojira 1954. Ah, the OG Big G, yes, from uh, Hishiro Honda, fantastic film. Uh, I'm super excited when you brought this up. And so the little bit of the experiment, I'll just already tell people now before we get into this, so you can be really excited for this, since uh, we are breaking the season up into the four different aesthetic categories that I've chosen you had the wonderful idea, instead of doing a double feature of, of this with Shin Godzilla, which would give a great contrast in comparison of how they explore the political landscape and the response to the situation, instead of doing a double feature for this one episode, we could a- approach them from different aesthetics and see how that affects our reading of them. So we're going to come back to that during the grotesque. So somewhere around the end of the run, Danny will be back, and we will be following it up with the kind of reboot of this whole franchise for the modern era. But first, we're going to get into the 1954 film, and uh, we're going to first give a brief synopsis for anybody who hasn't seen it, which, I mean, if you haven't, come on. I know you can watch the MonsterVerse stuff, but know where it comes from, and, and you'll really understand what those movies are going for as well. To keep things simple, I actually want to see how well IMDb is doing with their synopses and see after our discussions if we feel 
they've even remotely told you what a film is about. <laughs> so their synopsis says, an American nuclear weapons testing results in the creation of a seemingly unstoppable dinosaur-like beast. That is accurate, but I think there's more. Mm. And uh, I can't wait to dig into that. So when I approached you for this and said, hey, I want to bring you back on. You can pick any aesthetic that you want. Godzilla was really quick. I think we also discussed this a little bit on Twitter, uh, and that's where it kind of sparked it. But what made you want to talk about this movie on a podcast? Oh, gosh. Well, first of all, I don't I don't think I ever have had the opportunity before. And <laughs> there have been other podcasts where I see people get to like gush and fawn all over it for a myriad of reasons. And I was just like, you know, <laughs> I need to do that too. So yeah, I'm happy you did. I haven't gotten to talk about it yet either. So thank you. Yeah, I'm I'm delighted. And I can't I really can't wait to talk about. Um, honestly, to me, they feel like bookends, which Mm -hmm. they're meant to be, in my opinion, Gojira and Shin Gojira in the um, almost 2020s. Wow, that's crazy. But they have this tether between the two that is unignorable. And what each film is doing from a horror history perspective is mm. is truly undeniable and incredible. And it's like totally my jam. So like a lot of horror I like to write about or even sometimes things I like to explore is from a horror history perspective and uh, little little baby Danny like when I found out that there was a film that actually went into the horrors of uh, World War II nuclear warfare but like had a sci-fi horror slant on it I was just yeah, I, I ran to see it immediately. Not the American one. <laughs> Not the. Mm. And, we'll, and I'm sure we'll get there, but yeah, the original. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Those are the very specific reason. You know, you're using Gujira, which I, 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 I will do that as well. It's the Japanese version that we're talking about for everybody because there is a very distinct difference between the American take on it. It's the same film, essentially, but they did add some things to it to Americanize it. It's not just voiceovers the way most of the later installments in the franchise did. And so you, you said that you... So did you see this at a young age then uh, for the first time? I did. I honestly okay. can't remember when. It's It's odd being young when you see things. You remember it. Like your body remembers, your mind remembers, but could you put a date on it or a month on it? You just you just remember it. Fair enough. Yeah. So do you remember, was it like on television that you saw it for the first time or did you actually try to find like a, a copy of it in the rental stores or something? Um, I may have seen it, okay, on one of maybe a couple platforms. So I may have seen okay. it on Svengooly. <laughs> oh cool i may have seen it on turner classic movies or okay so this is okay we're we're of a certain age so like after a certain time at <laughs> night you remember like tv used to kind of go off <laughs> like oh, TV, God. tv oh, used God, to like cut off or like <laughs> it used to go straight to infomercials yeah but I, I i can't remember even if it was just on some obscure channel at night you know mm -hmm. so it was one one of those three but it was one of those three that 
tried to, I think, get an original copy of the film that like added context, um, so on and so okay. forth. All right. Okay. Yeah. And there's a lot of options there as well. I mean, yeah, when, when I was growing up, uh, they had so many channels pick this movie up. The older they get, the the easier it is. You know, the rights become cheaper and cheaper, I suppose. I think I caught it on sci-fi, but when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Yeah, I was a bit older when I saw this particular film. I was a huge Godzilla fan as a kid. So, you know, I, I had the toys. I had seen some of the later films in color. Mm-hmm. You know, when we already mm-hmm. had all the, you know, the villain of the episode, basically kind of <laughs> movies that they were making. And so for me, I think it wasn't until I was a bit older that I, my mom finally just told me, like, well, you know, the original is a much scarier film. Like, what? Godzilla's scary. He's a hero. <laughs> she's like, okay, h- hold on, hold on. Well, if you ever see it, you need to let me know. And as sci-fi did very often, they did a lot of movie marathons, and they did a Godzilla marathon for as many of the movies they could get the rights to. And I think this one was always pretty easy to get the rights to. So, yeah, I finally got to see it. But it's not really – it's recent memory that I hold on to with this movie. I don't think I really paid too much attention to it when it was on TV back in the day. Probably because of the quality of televisions at the time. Yeah. Didn't. Yeah. Any older <laughs> movie, they don't really work on those TVs, do they? Well, it's interesting because at least the aspect ratio was – Hmm. Correct for the TVs back then. <laughs> so fair. That's fair. Like you at least got a full screen experience when you watch them. Uh, yeah. So it was lost on me until I was an adult. Really, just how dark this movie really, truly is, and quite a poignant message behind it as well. You were talking about already that it's this kind of sci-fi take on the horrors of World War II, and of course, more specifically, the bombings that took place in Japan. I want to talk a little bit then about how they've crafted the film. I think what's really interesting to me, compared to a lot of the other Godzilla films, and of course, any of the American Godzilla films, is that Gojira really sets itself up from the moment it starts Mm -hmm. as this force of nature. Yes. Without any bells and whistles, it just kind of quietly reminds you of what it's like when nature does terrible things. Absolutely. Um, rewatching it again last night, I was struck, like you said, like once again with how quietly this film starts. And it starts very quietly no no loud music no you know no kind of fanfare you know how like now and mm-hmm. you know credits and things we get something flying <laughs> or whooshing or blowing out of the screen like it's you know it's you know obviously it's a film from the 50s but the tone that it starts with is very serious and it starts with the sound of a loud boom And if you're not familiar with what the boom is, you're like, what on earth is that? (laughs) So it already is quite unsettling about what what this booming sound is. And then you hear this unfathomable, I I hate to call it a roar because it's it's to, to condense it to just a roar is like making small of like what. Gojira is so yeah something that that the human ear just 
kind of tries to comprehend. Mm-hmm. That's a great way to put that. It's a it's a very eerie sound. I mean, yeah, it is the most you know the very iconic Godzilla roar that we we know and love. Mm-hmm. Even actually before the one that we're kind of more accustomed to, to be honest. And there's just something so raw about it here. And I can only imagine that if you were part of a Japanese audience at the time, seeing this for the first time, and you don't know that this movie is going to be focusing so much on the bombings mm-hmm. in World War II, that I can imagine that elicits something, hearing the boom, boom, and this undescribable, horrible sound. I, it, that thought always hits me when this movie starts. Of just what was it like in 1954 Japan mm-hmm, to be mm-hmm. in that crowd to hear that before this movie even started? Thinking you're like, it's the big lizard movie, right? <laughs> right, absolutely. And gradually, the um, iconic score by um, Akira Ifukube starts in the background oh. and gradually pulls us into the film. Um, so, already you have like a whole bunch of layers happening. You have footsteps you have an ominous sounding screeching roar and the score and then it fades into um a scene that was based on some very very real history mm-hmm. yeah I, I didn't dive too much into that but i was checking my blu-ray i have the criterion set for the the showa era godzillas and they did have a piece on that very but i briefly saw what it was but there was indeed a a disaster on a ship that mm-hmm. seemed to have been the the main inspiration from this do you know more about it that you can explain yes absolutely um so the lucky dragon number five fishing vessel was um drifting in water in maritime waters uh in the pacific and actually received uh the brunt of an atomic blast Frighteningly, the members aboard, you know, talked about the the flash, which is eerily reminiscent to what you actually see in the film. But mm-hmm. in real life, they actually, you know, saw the ash falling from the sky. They were covered in it. Not immediately, but gradually they started to have the uh, and feel the effects of radiation sickness. And um, the fact that this is where the film starts is letting you know that like it's firing on all cylinders mm-hmm. with Japanese cultural like history. So it's 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 starting from a very real place. Um the fact that the the ship still actually exists. It's um it's in a museum as a matter of fact. Okay. And the um there's actually a documentary about the event if um any of the listeners are, are curious about it. Um, it it sounds like a very haunting situation. Just, the, I mean, <laughs> the movie obviously would be just a mind-boggling thing to experience, considering the the super not supernatural, but I guess the the extra fantastical element that you slap on top of it with things that they must have seen. Mm-hmm. But just hearing the real world version of it, I just it gives me chills. Just thinking about it, I can only imagine what it's like to see that ship and know what was going on there. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely personally want to, you know, find out more and see some documentaries on this. And you're right that it starts this film, even without that prior knowledge, you feel it a bit. It doesn't feel like 
this was just plucked out of air for entertainment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This moment has a lot of weight to it and feels indicative of something else. And it's just such a, it, it was already a quiet opening. And then you get a very disquieting hit right after mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. that you, somehow you get more quiet <laughs> watching the film. It, it's such a, a gut punch. And the movie doesn't really let up from that point on. It is quite interesting to see how this franchise developed over time and the tone shifts that it underwent. Yeah, yeah, totally. When you see these origins, it's very interesting to me. You, you've already touched upon one thing that I think let's, let's start there when we're talking about aesthetics then. Something that we don't talk about a lot. And honestly, even on this podcast, I've only really broached the topic kind of gently. And that would be the music. Because the score to this movie, not only is it just legendary, and most people, if they hear it, they're like, I've heard that before. You know it. It's a very famous just theme. But it's also sparse. And I mm-hmm. love that. That when it's there, it matters. Totally. Totally. Um that it's got um, kind of two main themes. Like everybody obviously knows like kind of the Gojira theme, if you will. Yeah. And then may kind of sort of know the triumphant, all hands on deck, it's time for war theme, kind of happy plucky kind of theme. Mm-hmm. But um, it's so interesting that this that the Gojira's theme has been used for all kinds of different things. I remember when I was a little kid, like, I can't remember what the, what the song is, but I do know, like, it was like a hip-hop track that used, like, the hmm. iconic dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, that part, like, it used mm-hmm. that in a sample. And I remember just kind of thinking back, I was like, wait a minute, that was the song that used this as a sample. <laughs> like, That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I wish I could remember that. what the song was. Well, you know, maybe uh, afterwards, if we ever, if you figure it out, then I can always put it in the show notes. So in case we don't mention it here on the show, check out the show notes and maybe we can get you, like, everybody, like a YouTube clip or something to check out this track that you're mentioning. But that does show the testament of uh, Kira Ifukube's score here. It's calculated, it's powerful. And it really showcases the might and grandeur behind the beast, basically. Which kind of brings a question then. What is the beast in this film? I love that this film takes far more time to explore the human response to it than it does about indulging in the science fiction of it all. Right, right. Um, that I, I really love that this film started to get into some like really cool nerd stuff (laughs) if you will like if you love like dinosaurs or if you love you know paleontology or archaeology or whatever like this is also i guess the film for you um and i guess maybe people who are 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 more inclined slash have taken biology more recently than i have (laughs) could (laughs) could tell me if this film is correct with when it starts to break down um where Gojira came from the pers- like the specific you know period was it the was the Jurassic period correct like was it was it you know did they get all of that kind of stuff right and accurate right. so yeah I love it got real it that's the stuff I think that makes children really latch on to it if the, even if you see because you would think that 
like myself, it's probably something like Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla that would really get kids really latching on and staying. But even Gogeta has enough in there of this this whimsy and and wonder about just the world, the science of our planet and how we exist that it keeps you locked in and, and it always seems to light that portion of your brain up. Even now, at the, the wonderful age of 34, I'm watching it and it's going, ah, wow, yeah, tell me more. You know, when the professor's up there and then telling everybody about the links that they made. And they're all very sound. I, I appreciate this. Nowadays, we have had so much science fiction that it's kind of hard to get away from the science that we know really well. Mm-hmm. And then you have to complicate it to a degree that it's actually really hard to follow. And I loved here that you could just see that, yeah, that all makes sense based on the, the very limited amount of archaeological or paleontological knowledge we might have. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, totally. I appreciate that this film was incorporating so much into its story. And actually, maybe if we rewind just a little bit back sure. to the beginning after the uh, fishing vessel experiences Gojira's first appearance, we actually don't see Gojira for, I don't think we see Gojira until like the 15 minute mark or the 22 minute mark, I think. Mm, Something like that. Yeah. But what I loved is that this film um, started very small, like it started in the fishing villages, like different islands, like far away from like the big cities and everything else that it, it started with smaller communities who... Um, and I really love this component that the elder, you know, character, some of the elder characters knew of Gojira's existence for a long time. Um, and even there was this spiritual uh, shamanistic element, you know, that was introduced that like they knew of this ancient, you know, creature that lived amongst them for generations and generations but whether the people like on the mainland knew of it obviously they didn't but the people Mm -hmm. you know far removed from you know kind of wider japanese you know society and culture and everything like revered this this ancient being like i really loved some of those elements when i rewatched it i was like whoa i did not pick up on this I always love that part, especially when they're doing the dances and you have the old man explain how, hey, these rituals used to be a lot more barbaric Mm -hmm. because we were very scared and we knew that it was real. But as time goes by, of course, especially smaller areas that kind of like to hold on to superstition and traditions, you may not completely lose it, but you do have the outside world try to stamp it out just a little bit Mm -hmm. and i I liked that there was this sort of divide there where the younger generations weren't at all going well it's not this god they're like could be i don't know i I don't necessarily believe but we're gonna do the ritual now (laughs) because right uh, we're scared we this is what we have because we've lost our livestock we've lost a lot of other things Mm -hmm. and that was no typhoon basically is what they're saying right i uh, I, I So it's interesting you bring it up this way because the, the question I've had in my mind as well is, is the movie really, or at least for your feeling and, and, and my own, I'll give my own opinions on this. If the film is trying to say indeed that this, that the belief is exactly what this creature is, or if it's a, like a convenient thing that they had a belief of a particular deity that matches the might and location of this particular 
animal. So I'm very curious how you feel on that, because if I read correctly the, the way you've described it so far, you would then feel that the this is what they were talking about. Like they had a feeling it's down there. They've, they've seen signs over hundreds of years, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm always of the opinion and the belief that whenever elders speak of something, it has a root somewhere. Like it doesn't, right. like something that the elders have seen, witnessed or experienced is something real, whether it, whether it's an ancient, you know, prehistoric creature or not, or mm-hmm. some um, some type of folk tale that's kind of grown and you know maybe spun a little out of control for the young, you know for the young people. Um, but I feel like it's never good, right, to diminish what your elders are trying to say or what their experiences is because there's some kind of truth there. And like, and the fun part, or even like the cathartic part for the younger generations is finding out like, well, what did they see or what, you know, what was going on in their lives that they have this, you know, obviously this clinging on to something, you know, obviously horrific happened and it's stuck. Mm -hmm. Like, so there's obviously generational trauma attached to Gojira, which I think is even more like impactful that the mainland has no clue about, right? And that I I love that in the film, um, even Gojira just shows up on the island sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> like just shows up around the island, like makes its presence known. <laughs> I do like that, especially in just broad daylight. It just peeks over mm-hmm. this 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 hill. It's like, hey, what are y'all doing over there? You're making a lot of noise. <laughs> It just leaves. Right. <laughs> Shows just like, oh, wow, okay. I guess it adds that that reality of this thing is here. It's not going anywhere. Uh, you know, and it is just kind of acting like an animal, just going where sounds are taking it. Uh, you, so I have two things based on what you were saying about, you know, communicating with elders and, and their beliefs. And I, I agree with you that questioning it, A, I like how you put it. It's like it's not fun, but it's also not respectful. And there's plenty to learn from these stories. So I guess more what I was getting at, it was more in a story world kind of way of like, if you feel that that particular creature may have been literally what they were kind of thinking of, or maybe they had other reasons in their past that led to that story. And then, of course, I love that you bring up the generational trauma because that is where we get into, if it is the latter, why you can easily just apply it to this Mm. because – Regardless of what real world thing, whether it's just bubbles in the water or, you know, there could have been some sort of fissure that created like from a volcano underneath the sea, uh, regardless of what that was, this is what it is now. This is what Gojira has become and, and it applies perfectly. So the reason I find it so interesting that to talk about the generational trauma a bit is because you also mentioned the mainland Mm. and how they have a completely different feeling with Gojira. They even say in the whole press, it's not even with the press, I suppose. It's when they're with, they're on television going over all their notes from the islands. And the professor says, I'm just going to use the name that the, the, the fishermen use. This is, you know, what the locals on the island have uh, called it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm going to respect that. This is Gojira because <laughs> it is basically how he's understood it. What I think is really interesting with the what the film does 
is show this generational trauma both from the Islanders' perspective and in the mainland because we do have the war and we do have the bombs. And mm-hmm. that is immediately addressed. The moment that they take us to... Is it Tokyo? Do they actually address what city it is that they are in? I can't recall. Um, I was trying to check that out this time. I, I, I wouldn't I be surprised, it. though. Well, let's say fictional Tokyo then, I suppose, but I'll, I'll just refer to it as Tokyo. Uh, and the moment they show the city, they have people who are commuting, hearing about it on the news. And one girl even says, like, I barely survived Nagasaki. Yes. So I'm really oh. unhappy with this. It's the first thing they say. That, that like, punched me, like, in the gut mm-hmm. because I was thinking about, okay, she's very young, right? Young looking. Yeah. So that, I can only assume that she was a young girl or a very young mm-hmm. child when she experienced that and the way she just kind of said it so offhandedly yeah was like oh Which is so now that we are and i know listeners we're in 2021 i know you're tired of hearing people talk about the pandemic but it is topical so i do apologize but i'm going to bring it up because it is a current event and it is shaping our world and the way this girl on this tram, metro, it wasn't too clear, subway, car that they're on, address this is kind of similar how I hear a lot of younger people address the pandemic we're in right now mm-hmm. or how people mm-hmm. our generation might refer to 9-11 mm-hmm. in, in response to the pandemic. And it, it was very interesting and eye-opening for me because here we are 50, 60 years down the road. Oh, my God, no. What am I saying? Like 70 years down the road. And it's the same, right? People don't necessarily change just because the times do. And I think it's wonderful to look back on these older films to see how people are responding to historical events from our perspective, of course. Because it helps you contextualize events that are going on in your world and responses people are having in your world. Which I guess is one reason we're going to do this kind of split double feature. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, Really shows that off. But it was just incredible to me how flippantly she talked about it. Because I'm so used to seeing films from the 50s and 40s. Everybody has a sense of harrowing emotions and big and oh, about something like this. And she was just kind of like, I I didn't survive Nagasaki to have this shit happen to me right now. Basically... (laughs) She yeah. she really wanted yeah. to go home and get a latte. <laughs> yeah, it's and it's really incredible how trauma can last forever, but at the same time be very kind of situated, I guess, in a place and time mm. that like as the younger generations move further and further away from the initial incident, less and less kind of uh, gravitas and like emotional hold it has on like the younger generations like there's even um different news reports and studies and everything else that the a lot of young people in japan like have like no frame of reference that there were even like atomic bombings that there were people who survived it wow that there was uh or is i don't know if it's still ongoing but a campaign to kind of 
I'm not going to say, I don't know if I necessarily want to say silence, but definitely it felt like silencing people who experienced it, like people who have the scars of mm-hmm. the, the atomic burns. They're um, called the Hibakusha. Like they still talk about like what happened to them. The fact that there are still survivors. Many are are very old. So right. our, I guess I would say our grandparents, or our great grandparents ages, um, depending on how old you are. But um yeah, the fact that this is like a, a through line that even still has like its like kind of impact and, you know, implications today. And the fact that when we're going to get into this later on, but I just I have to bring this up. Mm-hmm. Like when we talk about Shin Gojira, the fact that Shin as a character just exploded in like popularity again in Japan as a character, like as a fixture as like mm-hmm. cute plushes and toys and like amusement park rides and like it's it's crazy. <laughs> I mean, I'd love to is, go to yeah. Japan for that alone because it's yeah. it's intense like the love for the the newest iteration of Gojira. Um and mm-hmm. I think there's something profound about that and probably the younger generations being like, "Well, let's let's go online and find out like why or how or start asking questions." Right. I love that that's a way that film can be used to help educate in the world, you know, because not only are you going to want to see, hey, where did this whole franchise come from? And then this this big fandom that this big boom, what's going on? Oh, that thing. Okay. Uh, Oh, I remember that. My my parents loved that. But why? They'll explore that. But then, of course, you're going to see the film and, and say, like, this feels kind of foreign to me. Why? And then you look up all the details of what actually happened and learn a bit about it a bit better. I love that film can do that. And I love that horror does this a lot, <laughs> especially the these types of horror films that like to address re- real world issues in the narratives that they're putting together as fantastically as they put them out there, especially in this particular case. So there is a beautiful thing right there. The, the fact that there is a timelessness to our experiences of cinema to mm-hmm. a certain degree. Obviously there's always a context that can only be felt in the moment when something is released or when it's topical to a situation. But I will say that having being my age, being born in 1987 and so far detached from all of this, I can still feel the emotions of those echoes that were left behind because uh, the people who've made this movie put a lot of that into it through the score, through the sounds of uh, all these. I think they have a, a children's choir that's singing through a lot of it. Mm. And just through being able to see how the world existed at the time, not just how buildings were and how people dressed and stuff, but really how did they speak to each other? How did they get their information and how did this shape their responses to situations like this? And uh, so, yeah, very interesting. You, you kind of sparked that with that that comment just now. <laughs> yeah, this um this film upon rewatch, like for 1954, and obviously there are cultural issues we have to take into account. But there were some different <laughs> things I noticed in this film that was that were really probably pushing some like boundaries and taboos um, in Japanese society about those who were pushing against maybe spiritualism, pushing against Mm -hmm. capitalism, 
pushing against, you know, the new mechanized uh, Japan in that aspect. Um, when the press conference is going on and hearing, you know, the women use their voices and shouting and saying like, no, yeah. like we need to tell everyone about this. Like we need the truth, like tell the truth, like to hear, you know, these women just jumping up and shouting and, and it's framed very intentionally, I think, um, that usually, you know, films didn't have like the luxury of just like cutting and editing and cutting and editing like things were filmed like very intentionally right that to frame obviously these women surrounded by this like these panels of kind of men and everything and to make sure that the camera is on them right and to show them like jumping up and shouting like you know that hearing hearing the prof- the professor's diagnosis of Gojira and what's happening and the danger that you know Gojira potentially poses and for them to already like be on board with the science (laughs) be on board with the truth telling and like not you know trying to cover this up or make it go away but like it's it's powerful because I I think about like how many communities obviously would be vulnerable like once as we've already seen right Gojira he mentioned that kind of offhanded comment that they used to throw like village maidens to Gojira to yeah. <laughs> for sacrifice. Like, <laughs> like. So back to real quick to the scene in in uh, the press conference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really the way they just broke out of like, no, don't you dare, don't you start this shit. Yeah, basically what these women are doing. Yeah, because this guy's trying really hard to push like we shouldn't tell anybody because they're going to panic but we already know why he doesn't want people to know about it and he finally has to push and come clean and like because let's face it we're going to have really poor relations with America if we were to blame them for the H-bomb for all this and it you get that really nasty like is this really a political thing or is it a capitalist thing and you get your answers later a lot of the later films in the franchise especially in the Showa era make that a little more blatant you know they get more archetypical depictions of capitalism and and the sleazy people who try to make all of these theme parks and stuff. But I love here that they just very subtly kind of show how the government thinks this way in that most of the little breadcrumbs that we get of information of the concerns, most of the men that you have in their little lab coats and their suits and stuff keep mentioning things like, oh, the economy is going to crumble. Mm-hmm. Uh, how are we mm-hmm. going? We have, we have to fix this now because we have to shut down international trade. That's all they care about. They're not really thinking about protecting their citizens. And to uh, the professor's point, Professor Tanabe, he thinks this is a golden opportunity to study a new life form that managed to survive mass amounts of radioactivity, which could protect them if another war were to ever break out. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, and I love that they use the voice of women to broach that initially in the film. I also don't know if they ever address the roles of anybody there apart from mm-hmm. the professor. Mm-hmm. So I love the chaos of it all. Like, I don't even know if these people were just citizens who were just there who, were, who had enough. Right. I have no idea what was going on there. <laughs> but I do love the intensity of that scene we also see this a lot with the character of of emiko Mm -hmm. how she has to basically be the middle point between three different ideologies yes on this whole issue 
and therefore has the most complex development throughout the entire film. Poor girl, she she does not have a good time <laughs> during this film. Uh, she has she's got the brunt of burden for a lot of different things, uh, and I felt really bad for Emmy go throughout the entire thing. Yeah, um, it's she's such an interesting character because the like you mentioned the way she is positioned that she, there's like a tug of war going on between like kind of duty tradition mm-hmm. and this new Japan that's like on the horizon, right? Yeah, where women will have more agency, where women will have like more voice in their own choices, and you kind of saw that like glimmers of that throughout the film. That, you know, it was uh, initially like an arranged marriage situation going on, but Mm -hmm. she didn't love who her intended was supposed to be. That she, you know, was going to find love and happiness like elsewhere. Like, I think that was like really powerful to see that she cared for him very deeply, but like to, you know, sacrifice herself in a loveless marriage just was not where her head was or where you know, young people were beginning to think, you know? Yeah, I I imagine that's where a lot of that taboo you were talking about was really going to come from in this movie at the time. I would say any, honestly, any movie from the 1950s to have a topic like that is already touching on territory that we're going to make any audience pretty uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But then for the East, even more so, where they do have more honor and tradition and, and, you know, you the respect of your elders goes to a degree that you just do what they want of you, basically. Whereas, you know, in America, things were, I guess, you know, we had prohibition that kind of screwed up a lot. <laughs> kind of made people go a little insane in that regard. Uh, for, at least nice and quickly. You know, you, we broke the bonds a little earlier, but through different means. I quite liked how the story, though, it, it breaks borders to an extent, because it's a very recognizable story just about anywhere, I would say, if you're looking at you know the struggles, at least gendered struggles that different nations have gone through historically. And I love the drama. I got to say that. I do love the drama that it builds there because we were trying to figure out if Emika is going to be happy by the end of this. But then, of course, you have the looming threat of Godzilla or Gogeta that kind of puts a question mark on is there a happiness to have basically Mm, like mm -hmm. how apocalyptic are we talking about with the situation which becomes clear by the end and i don't mean because they eventually kill gojira but i just think that the moment that they do they kind of make it clear that this thing was probably about to go back to sleep that was my feeling here it got pretty docile after freaking out for a little bit yeah and just it that just like tragedy on top of tragedy on top of tragedy on top of tragedy this movie yeah and it even kind of goes back to like what the elder said that like they you know would see gojira every couple years or so and gojira Mm. would you know disappear or go away you know so like i i thought like it would have you know been amazing to have you know that different perspective you know where all of the kind of you know, people in the big cities are trying to come up with something to do. And, but like, this is, um, you know, where um, Dr. Tanake, right? Takane? Dr. Takane? Uh, Professor Tanabe. Tanabe. Sorry. Apologies. Um, <laughs> was getting there that like Gojira should be left alone, mm-hmm. that we should maybe just study, that, 
this is this is a, a very ancient creature that's trying to exist in our completely like modern you know human world and everything else and you know was completely against trying to harm or destroy or you know murder god you know gojira and everything and then you know to have the elder being like well you know gojira will come and gojira will go you know what i mean like if only exactly. if only like that perspective had been kind of there like for some of the people from the island community to be like no no it's okay like you don't you don't have to i mean be afraid yes but like because you go back to sleep it's fine there's also something to be said there that the islanders have this perspective of we can live for as much as nature allows us to mm-hmm. and you need to stop trying to force that because as you said be afraid and basically accept the fact that when this thing is around we are no longer the top of the food chain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so act as such and just protect yourselves and it'll go away and you are allowed to live your lives again. You don't try. Uh, we, we, we're not going out of our way to like throw bombs at tornadoes or anything, are we? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I liked that the film took this approach here and it's not just a big animal. It is a force of nature. It mm-hmm. is part of the earth, the ecosystem, and it seems to belong possibly even a little bit better than we do. When it gets to the mainland, you see that really clearly. The only thing it seems kind of pissed off about is like, what is all, what's all this crap doing all over here? <laughs> I love that Kajuda just like grabs a bridge and it's like, let's get this out of the way. What is, you could just walk on the land, you know? Right. <laughs> and I'm sure that's just the part of a person being in the suit, but it does add this sort of thought process behind the actions of the character where yeah Gojira seems far more uh, intent and has more intention behind its actions than just say if an alligator got trapped in your pool you know <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which of course adds to the tragedy of the whole thing knowing that this creature seems to be more or less aware of the situation just very confused of course but I mean it went home it's like okay I've had enough of this you're irritating me Go back to sleep. Uh, we'll never know <laughs> what was going to happen there, unfortunately. But again, where this movie gets me is that as much as I wanted them to explore that more, which they do in later films, I love that the film always comes back to how is this affecting everybody? And, and what tiny little tragedies are happening in the wake of this? Which, of course, mm-hmm. from a human perspective, are huge. They should be huge, at the very least. There's one scene in particular Mm. that gets me every single time. I can hear it in your voice. You probably know exactly the scene I'm about to talk about. It's the moment, and I know I've fast-forwarded a little bit. I'm I'm not big. Yeah, I I don't do play-by-plays, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Later in the film, during the big sequence, really long one, where we finally get Gojira just, just tearing up everything... I think that's when they introduce the atomic breath as well. Uh, you have a woman who's sitting on this balcony with her three kids. And Gojira's walking around and she just holds her kids while they're crying. She's like, no, it's okay. It's okay. We're going to see daddy now. Mm, and just mm. that kills me every single time. That scene, it just comes out of nowhere. And it's one of the only scenes where you get that kind of zoomed in perspective that isn't one of your protagonists 
And I loved that they decided to do that just to give you an idea of like all these little people you see running around. Yeah. This is what's going on in their heads. Yeah. These are, like you mentioned, like these are people with families and children and it was very quick in the beginning, you know, when we were when we were still in the seaside fishing village, the family that was killed quickly from the house collapse, but for the mm-hmm. movie to kind of slow down for a second and highlight this mother who's, you know, cradling her children knowing that they won't survive is just really powerful. And when you see some of, I think the very first people who are trying to like run away from like the blast, like it mm-hmm. it calls back to some really poignant like history that you know when the atomic bomb like flashed right it was so yeah. quick so sudden and so powerful that it left behind the shapes of the people that were that were there like whatever yeah. they were doing in their lives you could it literally was like a like a snapshot like in time that was like etched into whether it be like the flat pavement, whether it be stairs, whether it be like, you know, the side of a building, like whatever mm-hmm. people were doing, like it was like, I guess you could maybe kind of compare it maybe to like Mount Vesuvius or like Pompeii or something like that, where right. people were literally like frozen in time in like this horrific moment. I've seen the images. It's haunting stuff. Mm-hmm. And what cracks the mind for me a little bit is some of those positions are in motion. And you would, you know, we're so used to something like a photograph being so quick, but if you're in motion, it kind of blurs. Mm-hmm, so you would imagine mm-hmm. that if you're moving at that point, maybe you'd have like a blurry smear of ash or something, and they are just locked in position. You can just mm-hmm. see people almost at the, like if they were running, playing, whatever. And yeah, I, I th- that is very evocative at this point when you see the flames go down the uh, city street with everybody running away. Uh, you also have the radio host on one of the towers trying to get a good vantage point to kind of tell you what's going on throughout the city. And then God, you know, Gojira goes straight for them. The haunting idea of hearing a known like news figure, a national news figure, just very calmly. No, well, I mean, okay, not super calmly, but as calmly <laughs> as I mean, he, he was loud and kind of freaking, but you know, it still was very calm compared to what was happening. Just saying, okay, everybody, uh, it's happening. So uh, I've had a pleasure hosting you all, and uh, goodbye and good night. Yeah. <laughs> and then that was it. Tower is gone. Yeah. Incredible stuff in this film. And I know that people who might be listening to this who have seen a lot of films and disaster films, whatever. I know that these films do these things, mm-hmm. but there's a way that it's done here. And it, it comes into, in my opinion, the aesthetics of the film. It comes into the visuals, the fact that it is in black and white. I know that that wasn't necessarily a choice, <laughs> you know, uh, but I feel that the choice then was if we have to do this in black and white, you up the contrast. You make sure that the blacks really create darkness when it's nighttime and a lot of it takes place at night mm-hmm. and that use of music the fact that there's barely any and we just hear this it really does feel like a and a strangely edited documentary basically in a lot of instances and it just has this i don't know melancholy to it i think that's the word i'm looking for yeah but this film 
you know, doesn't have too many, like, moments of, like, levity or Mm-mm. joy, quote-unquote, because this is also a film where the director, you know, was working through a lot of grief and trauma and trying to be very respectful with the material. I mean, being a survivor himself, right, of mm-hmm. of the bombings, like that this was not that far removed in memory. Um, maybe, maybe for the youth, obviously, right? But for right. the adults, the elders that survived it, like, no, this was very fresh, like in their memory. So like, there's so much reverence for for the survivors for the victims and even trying to be this phenomenal like anti-war like eco horror piece i think that's another thing as well that this is a great Mm -hmm. eco horror film oh yeah and that's like totally like my jam like that (laughs) that some of the very first horror stories i got into right were environmental horror stories like not to be, you know, lighthearted or chuckly about it, but like I was obsessed with like all of the quote unquote nuclear horror stories because we were born like okay. in the 90s or the 80s, right? So we mm-hmm. were still kind of locked into fear of nuclear threat or like nuclear yes. scary, you know, um, abounding type things. So like, wasn't uncommon for me to have like a history book or be watching a documentary like with like rapt attention about like Chernobyl and Three Mile Island and you know Hiroshima Nagasaki Remembrance Day sort of things like Mm -hmm. just just fascinated with like mankind's capacity for destruction and like how horrific that goes yeah i also love how the so in eco horror films and especially one that's framed and crafted the way this one was they explore both the devastating power that nature wields Mm. while also exploring what you were just talking about that that destructive nature of humanity so very often what you get is that nature kind of snaps back basically yeah at so you want to see destruction you don't know destruction. And at the same time, nature seems to kind of respect itself more because mm. the, the destruction that we have is not just human on human destruction. It's this disregard for the world that we live in and for the planet that we live on. The fact that you can drop a bomb that not only kills hundreds of thousands of people, mm-hmm. it also devastates the landscape and actually leaves irreparable damage to a percentage of the planet. That's the fact that we could just do that in the blink of an eye because we had an argument about something. (laughs) It's what it kind of boils down to. You know, ideological arguments can really get into that. So I can see why that's such a interesting topic, especially for someone our age. Yeah. I don't know if you had it when you were growing up, but uh, Mm -hmm. in our schools, we still had like pamphlets and stuff on what to do if a bomb dropped. It was weird because they were leftovers. You know, we never lived in the same mindset that people in the early 80s did and before Mm -hmm, then. mm -hmm. 
it felt like a relic. Yeah. <laughs> and you see it all the time in films. And I was more interested or kind of morbidly curious about it because of my mom's stories about how mm-hmm. they like genuinely did drills and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Or just, I don't know if you felt the same way, but for me, I always thought it was weird watching 80s movies with all these Russian villains. Oh. oh wow, okay. Yeah, okay. it's <laughs> it's it's interesting how, you know, Hollywood moves, you know, you and I know this, how it's like villain villain of the week kind of thing. Yep. It's like, okay, who's our antagonist this year? That's all that's <laughs> all the films for this de- like for, and honestly, you're right. Like for a decade or more, it's just like, okay, this is our villain. These are all the villains for the movies. This is our antagonist. These are the people who want to rue destruction on everyone. You know, these are the big bads yeah. of the world. Like, <laughs> it's kind of a weird acknowledgement of the fact that people have the capacity to do absolutely horrible things, but then the narcissism of saying, but oh, but not me. and that has never appealed to me nearly as much as these sorts of films the eco horror films that try to show you that but being human Mm -hmm. is the problem and is the thing that you have to kind of suppress if you want to do right by nature are you going to go by nature you're going to go by nurture Mm. and nurture is what led to the bomb nature is is gojira walking around just surveying the area and we're just constantly shooting at it <laughs> yeah our our nurture essentially our, our societal uh development on kill it kill it i don't know what it is i want to briefly touch upon the quote that i brought in because i think this is a good moment what we're talking about right now so just to recap that they're talking about how beauty is Objective. I've I've mentioned this. Okay, for those who have not listened to season one on the Anatomy of a Screams feed, uh, beauty tends to be seen philosophically as an objective feeling and and aesthetic category. There's a lot of contention on this because the mere fact that I have this podcast is to explore different perspectives on beauty (laughs) which would Mm -hmm. kind of break down the objective claim about it but i do understand where they're getting at when they talk about it being objective i think it's more like you know it when you when you know it when you feel it when you experience it i think we all know what we're talking about but when it comes to our taste what actually conjures it up is where it gets a little murkier but in this case i want to apply it specifically to gojira as a film but also as an entity and how, so they say, beauty is an objective property of things. It's apprehended through the delight we take in simply knowing them as they are. That's why I chose this quote, because I feel that that is where a just a very strong sense of beauty lies in this film for me, Yeah, is that exploration of Gojira and what it is as it is, seeing the, those moments of it just walking around and doing its own thing. Also, oh, I should say that that quote comes from Ronald E. Roblin from his book On Beauty and Ugliness in Art. He was a philosopher who worked quite a bit about beauty <laughs> and aesthetics. And so this is one of the books that he, he wrote about this in the 1970s. When you think about Gojira and beauty specifically, where does your brain kind of go? What, what was one of the first things that kind of comes to mind for you? Um, you weren't wrong. Um, like the visuals of this film have just like been seared into my mind for years and years and years that just the Mm -hmm. iconic shape that 
Gajira makes, like, cutting across yeah. the skyline. Like, that there's nothing in our modern world that is as big or as ancient. Um, like, sure, we still mm. have tortoises running around. We still have, like, crocodiles and other kind of, you know, reptiles, you know. Mm-hmm. But there's nothing that is its size or from a completely different era before mankind. So right. it it just is surreal, like something out of like Doctor Who or something. <laughs> I guess for reference, just like it's surreal to see this ancient creature walking around, swimming around, right? <laughs> just in the bottom of the ocean, just like hanging out, like eating fish, going to sleep. <laughs> like that I I have to, you know, give, you know, obviously like full props to um to the original um suit, you know, I, I'm not sure what I would say. Suit actor. There we go. Suit actor. Yeah. Complete props to them. Obviously they they couldn't see. They could hardly hear in the thing. Oh, like it was yeah. it was swelteringly hot in that thing. Like com- complete like props to the actor. Um I don't know. Also, just the choice that, you know, intentionally this was made in black and white. Like, it could have been made in color, but the punch, like you said, was even even better in black and white. And even, I'm just, I'm just going to be honest, when I watched it again yesterday, the black and white also does kind of help hide some things. Oh, yeah. Of <laughs> so, <course. laughs> let's, let's be honest. There were some moments in here. I was like, oh, look at the little... You know, prop airplanes and the cute yes. little the toy tanks and, you know, different things that, you know, now we'd have the technology to do. But back then, you know, they were just like, let's get some miniature sets. Let's get, you know, some little um, fake airplanes. Like, you know, so it was it was honestly kind of cute. I was like, oh, look at 1954. This is too cute. <laughs> so especially on our big screens now that like they've yeah. you know remastered the film quote unquote and like redigitized it for our big screens so now you can see all of those little you know those little 1954 things <laughs> so. and it, it's like there are so many things that it actually improves that you can see details in so you can actually see mm. the expression on Gajira's face you mm. can see you know the, the, the fish really well inside the fish tank and these little details are great but yeah to your point like there's a moment when they have the typhoon come in and they have a helicopter getting tipped over oh you had to just had to slow it down didn't you i understand uh it's very clearly just like like a toy that was closer to the camera i love it though it's if you just keep your suspension of disbelief there and just sit and watch and stay in the world you still feel the weight of it all but there's a part of your modern sensibility of course that is like i appreciate what you were you were doing here and some of the effects are just still mind-boggling to me there's plenty of them that i just i i don't know how you did it there are featurettes out there and you you can learn how to did it but i kind of don't want to know the magic tricks the effect that comes back in just all the Showa era movies that I love the mm-hmm. most is when you get the pylons and they melt. Yeah. I just think it looks so cool. So cool. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's just like electricity. Huh. Because I've seen that before. You have like these wires that if you pump them with electricity, they'll stay rigid. Uh-huh. The moment you turn it off, they'll start sagging and, and bending. Huh. I think that's what they did, but I don't know. They're also melting, like glowing 
so yeah that that is that is very curious like i'd be curious to know like what materials they used to um like he said get that you know melting effect and warping Mm -hmm. and all of that kind of thing it was just really just kind of surreal watching this film that that the creators were firing on these kind of um eldritch horror you know imaginings even back then like yeah that something can be so far out of our comprehension to i mean have this you know prehistoric creature that has obviously undergone some kind of metamorphosis due to you know the exposure to radiation and everything else Mm -hmm. that it can blast this destructive you know breath beam and like i mean some of these things like just sound like how on earth did you kind of come up with these (laughs) incredible ideas that obviously like these were people that were thinking so far into the future that that didn't feel maybe like stifled by maybe kind of commonplace horrors that were thinking of uh I I know obviously there's Afrofuturism, but I'd be curious about what that right. what the title or what that may be in like in Japanese society for the same exact kind of cultural thing where people are thinking in Japanese futuristic mm-hmm. you know setting and society and horror kind of space like thinking about the fact that this was made in 1954 like my dad was two years old <laughs> when this movie came <laughs> out so. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's wild that like this is like my parents like lifetime like movie like it it also generated a lot of films that tried to mimic it, mm-hmm. especially in the West. Mm-hmm. You know, that's when we got the big radioactive kick and you know, things like them. You got to see tarantula, all these different bugs and stuff that they try to make really big and scary, uh, which obviously it just comes down to the special effects of like, okay, what can we make? And, and how, now that we know the camera technique and people are into it, how can we milk this a bit? But it, yeah, this particular one is way ahead of its time. The mere thought of, I'm going to have this giant lizard walk around and blow things up with its breath. As you said, not even thinking about the technology of that and saying, no, we're, we're going to do it is just, it's 1954. How are you getting to get this thing to shoot fire out of its mouth in a convincing way without it being just a flamethrower, basically? So I love the use of the special effects as well and just the imagination on display to tell a story that has such weight and historical significance to it too it is kind of like the film is both looking forward and backward at the same time depending on what aspect of it you are focused on right and it also oh you were talking before about tradition how this is explored through the different characters and that i think plays into it as well that you know let's if we go back to emiko real quick she is a character so an archetype that is exploring this what will the future hold but also she is a product of the past and dealing with the ramifications of the past right what i love that they explore with her and i mentioned this to my partner when i was watching it today you have the fact that she holds on to the secret that sarazawa has made the oxygen destroyer this devastating 
just H-bomb on steroids, basically. It is worse than anything that's ever been created because it can liquefy matter. Mm. And you have, in Japan, of course, honor is a very important thing. Being Mm -hmm. respectful and true to your word is very important culturally. So you have the dilemma with her. Not only does she not want to be in the arranged marriage, I love you brought that up. So that's probably already got people like clutching their pearls, like, just do what you're told. (laughs) Right. Stop questioning it. Stop being so uh, just talkative about the whole thing. You have that, (laughs) this movie really focusing on it. And then you have the fact that she has the weight of, if I tell everybody, we're safe. We have a future. If I don't tell everybody, I'm true to my word. I uphold tradition and therefore I'm being a good Japanese woman for the time, at least Mm -hmm. I loved the dilemma throughout this film. And I love that she made the choice to think beyond herself in the, in, by the end of the film, I would love to know the audience response to the moment. She gives away the fact that Sarazawa has the bomb. Yeah. Because, in a Western film, I don't think it has that much weight. So I, it made sense to me that this had a, an American version of it because you can easily do that and Americans would be like, oh, good, you saved the world. America, yeah, saving people. Uh, <laughs> but for the touchiness of all of this, the fact that you have all of the trauma from Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the fact that you have tradition that just kind of stifles saving anybody in the situation therefore you cannot actually get out of your traumatic experiences you have to change right that's Mm. kind of what the necessity arises we have to change nobody likes to change and this happens so often in life that we go through these mass changes and i think emiko is such a powerful figure and character of at the time the changes of modern japan yeah yeah um i think that's why i brought up very early on like that this film has so many different story beats and threads going on um like i mentioned with the you know kind of pushing against against capitalism returning to a more environmental you know way of being or coexisting with nature that was being Mm -hmm. moved further and further away from i think it's very important and even telling that the film started, you know, with the smaller fishing communities, the villages, the spiritual practitioners, and then moved completely into the cities and didn't go back. Like, I think that was very intentional. You know, it's interesting, you know, like when you brought up how technology has been pushing uh, Japan further and further onward. So, um, like when, let's say, uh, Emiko was a little girl when she experienced what she did at Hiroshima Nagasaki, that the, the community would have still been kind of in this in-between place of like rural and a populous city that even then the, the, the nation was going through this kind of transformation, but like most of Japan was still quite you know, agrarian, quite rural, and th- there was a respect for for the people. And I don't, I don't know if there was 
classism in the way that we would understand it, but there was like a communal like respect for everyone, you know, from those who worked in, you know, the agrarian society to those who worked in the cities to those who worked in, you know, the textiles and the factories and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And that Imiko is a byproduct of that, that she's, you know, her father's a scientist. Like everyone kind of around her are in these like moving in kind of shaking fields that are pushing Japan into this new era and she's going to be a direct like byproduct of that like she's a scientist as well like um like it was like really cool to see her like going on the different kind of uh what would i say like gojira location scavenger hunts (laughs) if you will like that was cool she was like right there along beside her father like you know writing down geiger counter reading recordings and like taking snapshots and like being like a full like fledged scientist and like not being shamed for it like being respected for like her opinion like it was just like wow and the fact that it's still quote unquote radical to see women scientists like now just being people and like kind of living their lives and having their own choice and like that this film was doing it like back then and it was not even like a blink. I I can't remember. I don't think there were any scenes where anyone told like Imiko stay in your place or be quiet or you know, locking her up in a room or yeah, like no no scenes of like violence. Mm-mm. against her like in any way like you know shaming her for being a woman or anything like that if anything there's actually just one moment where she kind of just decides to help ease the kind of masculine woes of her suitor mm-hmm. <laughs> of Ogata mm-hmm. because you know they have the more or less arranged relationship between the two but then you know with Serizawa they have that past and she's like, look, Sarah's always, always kind of been an older brother to me. And I still see him as such. Mm-hmm. But he even says to her, like, thank you, Emiko. Because he knows exactly what she's saying. That he's having troubles. Like, well, you know, you're around this guy. You got a past. And I'm getting really insecure over here. And she's like, oh, he doesn't mean anything. Even though she's making it very deliberate. Like, I'm saying this so you will feel okay. Yeah. And because yeah. by the end of it, the, the fact that the way she breaks down, you would do with family, but it was the line that they have that after Sarazawa sacrifices himself to make sure nobody could use the oxygen destroyer again, uh, Ogata s- turns to her and says, he wishes us a good life. Mm-hmm. And she just, just dramatically turns around and starts breaking down. Also, you see the moment when he uh, Sarah Zawa shows her how the destroyer works as well. She goes into his arms in a very uh, intimate kind of way as well. So I, I just love that, you know, she also has the upper hand in that relationship too, where she's like, okay, I'll make you feel better. <laughs> Never is she told to step aside girl. Yeah. I, I love that it didn't fall into that trope where like two men are like fighting over her trying to, yeah, posture and everything like (laughs) it was very is very refreshing (laughs) obviously that's kind of my inundated with american media (laughs) you know yeah framework uh coming coming into play but like you know we've seen it in other 
other nations films as well so mm-hmm. but it's it's powerful that it's not here um and something else that speaking of Sarazawa like um I'm sure we're going to get there but I think it's important how that the events of the war like left no one unscathed right because it's so yeah. so close in recent memory that you know she even mentioned that like you know um you know Sarazawa you know lost his eyesight like in the war and like you know he's still like a visual reminder with his eye patch and you know I'm sure like maybe like if this was a little more recent maybe they would have scarred his face a little or something like that or mm-hmm. shown kind of more graphically but the fact that it was there it was a statement that was made is like very powerful and quite poignant so like both of them are actually like two traumatized children right from this yeah. from this era who are both kind of trying to navigate this world in this new way like Sarazawa with science and like really falling kind of headlong into grief and trauma like in a different way like shutting himself off from like you know connection with others and just fully kind of wrapping himself up in his work and yeah there's there's something in 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 there that's that's very sad about how like young people are trying to navigate this grief of this you know these traumatic incidents that happened Yes. And in the case of Sarazawa, too, we see this reconciliation to an extent, this, you know, him processing all this trauma in a very interesting and intellectual way. He decides basically by being driven by the fear and the trauma of the experience of that bomb, he creates something far worse because he Mm. plays with the same sciences. Basically, he needs to understand it because it's not understandable, basically. As you were talking about that eldritch horror, the fear of the unknown, it plays a lot in this film. When we think of eldritch horror, obviously, pop culture-wise, we're expecting tentacles and, and portals to other dimensions. But the heart of all of that has always been the fact that there are things in this universe mm. that you'll never know. And you don't get to know. That freaks people out, right? When you're like, you'll never yeah. get to know that. Yeah. You'll die before any, and there are things that no one will ever know. And that's where it gets really scary. And I love that they explored his trauma there without him flat out saying it. There's no big scene of him panicking or I have to do this because of whatever. It's just there. Mm-hmm. They just mm-hmm. show slice of life and it's there for us to find ourselves and pick apart. Cause honestly, until you were really talking about it in that way, I haven't, I didn't quite pick up what I'm saying right now, you know, this is inspired heavily on your description of his actions and the fact that we're talking about this generational trauma. Cause I, of course he would have been a child at the time. I, I don't know why my brain never made the connection, but it did for the woman in the, <laughs> the train car. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, for some reason, you know, when they said in the war, my brain immediately went, man, war, eye patch soldier, but he would have been way, way older. Cause it's, yeah, it's about 15, 20 years apart from each other. Mm-hmm. And then you see it with Emiko. She just happened to have a very good and structured environment from her father, who's just a very benevolent man. You see him processing his trauma as well. He's much older. He was old enough to understand that. Yeah, more. yeah. And that's why he's sitting here going like, I don't know why they won't study it. 
why you got to kill everything. It just weighs on him. Yeah, that like bombs got us in this predicament in the first place. <laughs> yeah, and you all know it. You're all talking about it. All the adults are talking about that because they're all traumatized. And he's like, so why don't you just stop doing it? Mm. It's a fascinating thing. We're doing this now. Yeah. Our generation are doing this with 9-11. Mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. we see because the trauma of that wasn't just planes hitting buildings it was a cultural divide was no longer divided in the most violent way imaginable mm. and therefore we witnessed xenophobia just slap us in the face in america and then we just met it with more xenophobia so then we created more trauma for other cultures within the same culture and just it it started to you know splinter and shatter everything Mm -hmm. and it's amazing how we're not doing anything to fix that we just feed more and more xenophobia on top of it and think that one day it's going to fix it right and again this is all just coming about in my brain because of this movie (laughs) i want to make that clear to everybody listening as well like i'm not walking around thinking these things all the time sometimes but this movie is bringing this to mind because it's showing I can only give context for what I have experienced, but it is showing people who are processing very similar emotions, just with different details, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's, you know, I love that you brought up earlier this kind of through line about about the ramifications of humans creating, you know, mass destructive mm-hmm. Things right. What's what's really ironic, right, is that humans are incredibly susceptible to like radiation, sickness, illness, whatever. Yeah. But like nature rebounds, and like not only rebounds but like thrives. That like humans are right the weaker <laughs> ones in this in the scenario. So like for example, like we brought up Chernobyl, right? Like around Pripyat and everything else um, in the surrounding location, like it's a paradise there like it's gorgeous like the like other like animals that haven't like been seen in the area before like humans started to settle it like came back and like mm-hmm. are thriving and it's just really interesting like humans you know meddling <laughs> you know like caused all of this chaos like if you think about it, all Gojira was just doing was just, like, eating the fish and, like, going away. Yeah. Like, but the oxygen destroyer killed all of the fish in the surrounding area. Exactly. <laughs> they talk about the ramifications, like, this will destroy a mass ecosystem. Our trade's going to fall apart. We won't have a food source for our own people. We have to evacuate 16, was it, like, 1,675 feet of the coastal line so that far away from the coast you mm. have to evacuate just because any water that's up there would get affected by this bomb and you're just gonna do that for one animal <laughs> that's kind of leaving you alone right now totally like wild <laughs> it is it's just so <laughs> it's so befuddling like the answer the equation is so simple <laughs> like yeah so easy <laughs> like and to their credit though i mean at the same time i do understand if on an emotional level especially on a species level mm-hmm. if we were to look at something like gojira we'd also be like so how do we survive this <laughs> yeah <laughs> and yeah. if the only thing that you have is like well we can kill it 
I think we would accept it even if it made us sad. Totally. <laughs> and, you know, just just that shot. Oh, I hate, I you know, another scene that actually makes me emotional, like besides the, um, you know, because there's obviously death all around in this film, right? Um, yeah. Between, you know, the mother dying and then like the oxygen destroyer going off and like seeing like, Okujira's like last gasps and trying to like survive this oxygen destroyer thing like seeing its body like wither away like and the fact that they show it like they like linger on it (laughs) it's like Mm -hmm. you know some movies we know make like might cut away like oh no our favorite you know monster or creature or whatever is dead and like would cut away and show people crying or whatever but like like lingering on the death of this, you know, you know, really beautiful and sad, mysterious creature, you know? Mm-hmm. And they do it earlier, too, when they, you think that they're going to do that very Hollywood thing when they show the first moment with Sarazawa showing Emiko the destroyer. Because she's just like, ah! And she turns. They do exactly what you were saying. They show the face of somebody who is disturbed by it. And then they cut to them walking away going, like, they're not looking each other in the eye, stuff like that. And I love that they then later go, uh-uh, when she explains it to Ogata, mm-hmm. she ex- you get the flashback and they show in gruesome detail these fish turning into skeletons in the mm. water and disintegrating and just how long it took and just how they just had to stand there and just watch them die. And yep, I guess the movie was kind of priming you for like, oh yeah, you're going to see this. We're going to make you feel real bad when this happens. Yeah, it's like there's these moments in the film that are just like dread, like doom inducing. Mm-hmm. So like doom inducing because, you know, like Gojira's going to come on land and like kill a whole bunch of people. Doom right. and dread because, you know, the oxygen destroyer is eventually going to be used and like it's like kind of up in the air. Like who's it going to kill or who's going to go down there with it, you know? are the people in the surrounding area going to die too from it? Like, I mean, there's like all of these kind of, you know, it's very like a very kind of anxiety inducing film because like, you know, that like death is like abundant, like rampant throughout this film. And like, it's, so it's so bleak like in the way that this movie you know old older movies okay this is for the children older movies <laughs> used to have all of the credits before the film started so when the mm-hmm. movie said the end that literally meant the end nothing else i, miss it. <laughs> I totally miss it look at the <laughs> extremity our films have to go to these days mm-hmm. just so you sit through the credits and go jesus christ at the end of the movie it just gotta okay i'm gonna breathe for a moment and just oh man, that's who the gaffer was okay <laughs> like <a> little, <laughs> i'm happy this was a movie okay good credits yeah it's fake okay uh but there's something about this and also another thing uh, so gather around children not only did we have the credits at the beginning there was a very specific way you would end these movies. Often you would have like this really whimsical dun 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 kind of music to let you know it was all a movie. That was their attempt to give you the big the end. Like uh, even even Psycho has it. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, that's a tonal shift. This movie did not do this. No, this movie just shows the sea devoid of life with the sun coming up. <laughs> Because, of course, it is. Another day has started with everything is dead. 
and then you just see the kanji symbol. And of course, if you're watching it with subtitles, the subtitle will pop up, but it just zooms in slowly. And, and you, and the music that's playing is the sound of the women singing the ancient prayers that they were singing during the destruction through the film. So they're actually praying for Gogeta basically at the end of the film. And you just, I don't, do you have the criterion Blu-ray of this? Have you seen that? I, um, I, I, okay. So I watched it on, um, I have HBO max. So obviously that has like the tie in with Turner classic and they have the criterion version of the film. So, okay. The reason I ask is because since I have the disc, I actually have the menu for it too. And the, now, granted, this is not the singular one. You know, they, they have just Gogeta as mm-hmm. a set, but this is the Showa era set, and the book that it comes with is really pop arty. And I, I promise everybody this has a point. Um, <laughs> and it's very <laughs> colorful. This book, a lot of good artwork. It's really big, bright. The book is yellow with pink letters that say Godzilla, all kinds of stuff. Mm. And that's the menu for this movie. Is like this pink and green. Godzilla drawing on this bright yellow background. So this black and white bleak ass movie that ends with this like you killed it. Are you happy now? You killed it kind of ending. Yeah. Pop goes back to yellow and pink and like thank you for watching this Godzilla movie from this god I was we were just sitting in awe at the tonal shift between the menu <laughs> yeah. and the film. And it doesn't help. I can say that much. I'm just sitting looking at all these bright colors. It's very sad <laughs> at the end of this movie. And I almost feel like it's calculated. There's some. I think somebody in Criterion was like, this is what we're going to do. <laughs> yeah, it was a choice. Uh, quite, a quite, choice. quite the mood whiplash there. Like, Yeah. Another power for aesthetics there, too. If you change your color palette quite suddenly, you get a bit of a visceral response to your eyes. But if the tone of the colors are usually used for, you know, to convey a particular emotion that completely is antithesis to the emotion that you were experiencing, it's quite an experience to go through. I think they're doing it because they know it's such a bleak movie, but... It, yeah, it was quite interesting for me to see them do that. Still, back to the film, though. I, I Yeah, I loved that by virtue of it being an older film, it had the credits at the beginning, and they really made use of that whole uh, structure. Mm, yeah, yeah, totally. And you you saw it a lot, though. I mean, the 1930s Universal you know, monster movies as well would often have that big tragic moment at the end, too. So you just go, oh, man, life is sad. and i i love that you brought up like what american monster giant creature feature movies were doing they were doing the complete opposite of what gojira was doing right like those movies are have like none of like the gravitas or seriousness or even reckoning or grappling with the history of like imperialism, mm-hmm. war warmongering, anti like nuclear, you know, slant that Gogeta was going for. Like these other movies are just kind of popcorn flicks. Yeah. Like they're not really super deep or super re- you know reflective or remorseful or anything. It's they're just kind of 
you know, like, well, you know, we brought this thing here. We're just going to blow it up the end. Like, like no kind of, yeah, no kind of um, emotional, like, you know, response, like visceral response, like rewatching, you know, Universal or um, RKO pictures or, you know, the different horror films of the era that were doing these big monster movie type things. It's jarring to watch very robotic kind of movies like very Mm -hmm. they're paced the same way they're written pretty much the same way the monsters or or creatures are introduced pretty much the same way with like no kind of you know like no no emotional no no tears like no reflection nothing it's just kind of yeah which happens to the godzilla franchise after a while you know they do start to emulate what America has been doing with it because mm. as you're talking about what they have with Shingo is hey, we can make some plushies and stuff on this. Capitalism really starts to sink its claws into the whole thing, which is so ironic considering the whole <laughs> heart of what was in this movie. And it, it, it is inevitable, isn't it? Yeah. But I, it's interesting though, how even in the earlier color films that do capitalize on that and try to give a more popcorn kind of film, they still focus on the radioactive aspects of it and a little bit of the origins of Godzilla and what it meant. Or maybe they include a new thing that like a, a new fear. For instance, the mere fact that they went for a more capitalistic approach, they kind of started to parody the fact that capitalism was coming from a foreign land Mm. so you were literally being invaded through your economy Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. so then you get entities like king Ghidorah, which is a literal alien that's just wreaking havoc and destroying shit so i I liked how it started out but of course about halfway through then we do get to a point where we're just like well i don't know he's got a kid now (laughs) and they have a lot of monsters (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like literally um, on MeTV, the Svengooly movie was uh, King Kong versus Godzilla. And my yeah. my dad was like, what is this $1.25 movie? Like, what is this? I was like, Daddy, it's it's King Kong versus Godzilla. Yeah. Like, Just Japan doing it right, basically. <laughs> Having some fun with their toys, basically. Mm-hmm. Um and this broaches a topic that I also wanted to get in on when I was watching the film. It's strange thing that happens with predominantly Western viewers. And I'm going to say English natives. So mm. England, Canada, and U.S. So like North America and, and I'd say England. Or let's say even just the U.K. in general. That people don't like to watch movies with subtitles, right? You get that part of it, but then you also get the part of a lot of stereotypes come from these movies, which unfortunately shape the way people view other cultures. You know, we live through media quite strongly. And again, I know some people who listen to the things that I say on this podcast are like, what are you going to talk about aesthetics? I want to let you all know, I have been talking about aesthetics this entire time. Deeper emotions are linked to our aesthetic responses and things that we're experiencing. And media holds this, especially visual media like this, the classic image you get. And I remember one of the first things I ever saw about Godzilla parodies and stuff. I, I want to say it was in Austin Powers that they do this gag, but they actually have like, oh, I don't, I don't remember the movie anymore, but they had like an actual giant dinosaur kind of like robot going, running rampant 
in a street and everybody's running away to parody oh, the way people run away from yes. Godzilla. And they're like, Godzilla. And of course, a Japanese person has to walk up and go, Gojira, and, and run by. And we're like, mm, mm. the 90s have, they have aged wonderfully. Uh, <laughs> not a fine wine, just an old wine. <laughs> Let's put it that way. And uh, it always got me thinking when I look back on this, like, how could people get that attitude? You get the attitude of like, oh, they all look alike. I hear a lot of people say nasty things like this. And I'm thinking... The only thing that has ever really gotten to me was the fact that I don't understand the language. And because I don't understand it, I don't hear words all the time. You know, the more you understand the language, the more clearly you hear isolated words and sounds. But it is a bunch of gobbledygook if you hear a language for the first time that has no sounds that resemble the sounds of your language. Mm. And I think that's where people are kind of responding the most Instead of really looking at like facial expressions or learning cultural differences, because if you know even a little bit about Japan, if I think about the first time I saw Gojira, it was, hey, this is that disaster movie with a dinosaur. And -hmm. it's awesome. When I'm an adult now and I have a vested interest in Japan and I've learned a few words and I learned a bit about the culture, not nearly as much as you have. I'm very impressed. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, just enough that I can see, oh, shit, this means something. Oh, that that's heavy. You know how we can talk about the taboos of just Emiko's very what we would consider very normal behavior. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. if you know a little bit about history, you know a little bit about other cultures it enriches your experience of it, and then you see aesthetics that change in your experience of them because they're no longer just a foreign aesthetic. They're foreign in that they have a different weight and context, but it doesn't mean that they don't come from the same place that aesthetics that you were used to might have as their, you know, they have a different source. But human emotion is transcendent. Mm. I, I And I think that's yeah. so important for people yeah. to understand. Yeah. Empathy is transcendent. And it's not, it's not hard to empathize with other people from other walks of life and, and from other cultures. If you take that breather mm-hmm. <laughs> and just, just have a moment, evaluate where your, I, I guess, blind spots are. And try to learn. It's it's so enriching. And I love watching foreign films because of this. And also, you, we use the term foreign films only because we're coming from our perspective from being Americans. Right? Right. Mm-hmm. Living in the Netherlands, the amount of times I see uh, American films in the foreign film section, it's interesting to me. <laughs> so even that term <laughs> has... It has a very relative kind of connotation to it. <laughs> so note... American listeners, you have you are foreign <laughs> to a lot of people. Right. Uh, a lot of our just ways of being. Like, I think people, I love how you brought up how, obviously, in our movies, you know, this still even kind of slips in sometimes. Like, subtle racism and xenophobia and everything else. Sometimes it's yeah. subtle, sometimes it's blatant. It kind of yes depends on the medium. But, like, other countries have the same thing. Like, Mm -hmm. looking at, like, American-ness, American culture, trying to dissect because America has so many different ethnic groups, racial groups living in it, you know, them trying to understand how this whole 
continent like works you know it's like really interesting and i'm sure some people saw some of these other films and tv shows like picking at us oh goodness like ooh, <laughs> i'm sure and like honestly if you learn more about those cultures beyond the major films or media and then look back at those major films and media that you know so much. Let's say take like anime in Japan. Mm. If, you know, it's one thing to know Pokemon, Digimon, Dragon Ball Z, the things that were westernized and, and, and got their dubbing and then thrown in Naruto, those things. It's another thing to really dig in and, and, and learn more about it that, you know, the ones that don't really make it to the United States are the ones that are so steeped in Japanese folklore and ideology that it's hard to translate it. So... If you were to learn more about those things, you would be surprised if you look back at Dragon Ball Z and stuff and see how much it is really making fun of American cartoons. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And same thing with these Godzilla films, the the later ones. Uh, I urge everybody to go watch, I think it was Astro Monster was the name of it. Yeah. That one, yeah, uh, it, it has so much in there that is a self-parody because they're really acknowledging what kind of franchise this thing turned into. But all of the archetypes are from the West. They are just clowns in capitalist suits, basically, doing their thing. And I love it. You got to be self-aware. You got to laugh at things like that, especially if you come from that position of power. Uh, as an American, you do culturally have that. And then, of course, me being a, a, a white guy, like even more so, like you got to laugh at those things. You really don't have thin skin about that sort of stuff. But don't. Get it out of your system to, to constantly look for a way to punch down as well. Try to learn more about others. Build your empathy, and you will understand yourself, but also humanity a lot more. The things that confuse you in life become a lot more clear because you can put yourself into other people's shoes. And this is a great starting point. Gojira is one of those movies that I think that the more you watch it, the less you get stuck in the sensationalism and the more you can focus on the human part of the story. Totally. Um, I think maybe um, I feel like we're coming gradually to a close, but um, feels like it. Um, one of those cultural things, um, like you mentioned, which is quite relevant today is that there are so many different even I would say even time period clashes kind of going on and it's just like just a part of the culture just the way things are so like for example like when the family is at home especially the father for example you'll notice he dresses like what like he takes off the suit and tie and you know and puts on very traditional like robes and clothing like it's very interesting that that he does that and even some of the the ways that they operate at home are still very traditional and domestic that the home even has this blending of traditional styling but also very like kind of modern technology like some homes try to do this now but try to bring the outside inside uh, as far as Mm -hmm. like the way the space is built um and it's very interesting that even like in japanese society today like um japanese uh korea other places that like the young people are like pushing and pushing to like you know we want to wear you know, the traditional clothing. We want to wear grandma and grandpa's, you know, hanbok yeah. and like, 
you know, robes and silks and finery just as like everyday clothing. It's just it's just so surreal and beautiful, like surreal and beautiful because it's to our eye and to our brain, you know, <laughs> it's, it works. And it's beautiful to see young people like us and people around the around the world that are still appreciating this film. And uh, it's it's overall cultural legacy and that so many people all over the world have been brought together because of this iconic piece of media is just really something that other films of its same exact era have like fallen in, into obscurity but like Gojira mm-hmm. is is bigger more powerful <laughs> literally and metaphorically <laughs> than like all of its contemporaries like by a landslide a landslide. Oh, yeah. Like for every one of them that is known in certain pockets or like maybe somebody in their family that their their particular family might generation by generation still love particular books or films or whatever. From, well, let's say films from that era. Indeed, I'd say Gojira is just such a mass entity. Yeah, it's funny how we have to talk about it in large scale when we're talking about such a, a large animal. But the concept and the, the sheer impact, uh, the cultural impact of this film has transcended culture, it's transcended time, mm-hmm. and it really, I honestly feel like it really wasn't until the 90s that that happened again with mm. all of the anime that poured into the United States. Yeah. And to this day, you know, like look at Pokemon, it is not slowed down at all it felt like it was going to for a moment like okay it's finally ending okay well this this has lived itself out and then uh, oh uh, or not you're just as cool and and common as you've ever been and i'd say the same for gojira the more they make movies the longer it's gonna survive and hopefully if the spirit of this original film continues to return from time to time Mm -hmm. because i'm not saying that there's anything wrong that the franchise took a more popcorn fun approach i mean if you have a property like this have fun with it i say as long as you don't take away from what you were initially intending in the process if we had gotten to a point where nobody had heard of the original but we only knew about mechagodzilla and king Ghidorah and all that then it would have been a different story but there's a reason that this movie has its own release from criterion Mm. as well as is part of the box set Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. it shows up in so many bargain bin dvds everywhere it just keeps getting resold to you because it's important and because it frankly is just that good (laughs) it's that good of a movie yeah minimal minimal budget aside like Mm -hmm. as much as obviously as they could do with you know, the shoestring that they were working with like they put like their heart and soul and everything into this movie and it just it just shows and it like he said it's uh it's a timeless film like mm-hmm. when we're when we're elderly and old and <laughs> like <laughs> we're still going to be like i remember oh. when i first saw that movie <laughs> you know like <laughs> like we're going to be those old hopefully not curmudgeons but who knows that are I'm already a curmudgeon <laughs> yeah that will still be like that you know the young people around us will be like well when did you first see it or like have you heard of this movie called gojira yeah. <laughs> like they're gonna be looking at us like 
it's gonna blow my mind the first time I talk to somebody. Like, let's say when I'm in my forties, first time I speak to someone who's like twelve, uh-huh. and they have like a Godzilla toy. <gasps> yes. Be like, hey, kid, come over here. Let's uh, let's talk. <laughs> really, let's really educate you on this. You're yeah. To, to blow your little mind. <laughs> yeah, like, like it's totally nothing for like kids to be like, woo, new Godzilla movie, woo. You know, like mm-hmm. King, you know, King Kong has been like has been like fading in my opinion, like more and more into kind of the annals and the recesses. Even though there's been this mm-hmm. new king kong versus godzilla like king kong didn't have the same impact because let's be real and we're gonna have to i think talk about it because it's it's a it's a film that's it's that it's it's contemporary like as far as big wide scale epic monster creature feature extravaganza right yeah that king kong was operating on a completely different like level that it didn't grapple with the same topical and timeless themes that it didn't really get into like let's say like race or like Mm -hmm. the imagery of its anti uh indigenous you know themes like you know it didn't grapple it didn't get into heavy territory the way gojira did and like and obviously, and I'm just be honest, like, Gojira just looks cooler visually. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I mean. Especially the old ones. If you yeah. Those two, it's like, I mean, Gojira is, is miles. I mean, granted, it is 20 years later, but still, it's just like, no, nah, there's no contest. Yeah. And that's like, I, I, you know, speaking of the beauty of horror, right? Like, the beauty mm-hmm. of Gojira's, like, whole entire just shape size stature sound yes sound appearance powers like like every time like gojira comes up in like a head-to-head like who's gonna win versus battle like gojira wins like every time like clears everyone off the board Mm -hmm. (laughs) because gojira is is a land and a seafaring creature and i think it's amazing again that like the director and the writers like thought about this prehistoric creature is you know semi-aquatic is a upright you know walking you know mammal well i don't know Mm -hmm. mammal but like semi-aquatic thing yeah reptile yeah reptile thank you yeah like Every time, like hands down, no holds barred. Like I knew how I knew how the new King Kong versus Godzilla movie was gonna go. Like I knew immediately. Mm. I was like, yeah, Godzilla. If they knew <laughs> their stuff, you know, if they really knew what they were talking about. Like, th- there's always the risk with later filmmakers picking up these properties, uh, and it's the thing that's happened with other franchises as well. You always hear like, okay, well, we're real fans. We're gonna get to the heart and core of this. And as I kind of said at the beginning of this you do have different perspectives about the same thing. And I've mm-hmm. seen it time and time again with like Halloween, Godzilla, King Kong, uh, f- uh, name any slasher that's had reboots. And the, yeah, if you read all of those accounts and you, you can easily just have your feelings hurt because you're like, I, what movie did you watch that you, ma- you made this movie out of it? <laughs> and some people I think were really afraid of that with, with Godzilla versus Kong or Kong versus Godzilla. To not go too deeply into it, I do agree with you that it's an interesting 
thing to discuss real quick is just how, like, if you look at King Kong as the contemporary of it, one of the main reasons it seems to have not kicked off as well, and honestly, so few films have been made, is because the Kong we have now mm-hmm. in our Kong versus Godzilla and in Kong Skull Island and stuff is kind of a recontextualization yeah. and, and a completely yeah. new reboot where they're trying to apply the Godzilla formula to the Kong character. Mm-hmm. But that mm-hmm. is not really what happened in the original films. As you said, that it was more anti-Indigenous. It was more about taking – it was almost like – perpetuating cultural appropriation but showing just enough about the dangers of messing with things you don't really understand Mm -hmm. but it when it comes to like the racial readings of kong that comes far more from coding than it comes from any intent of the film whereas gojira's themes are embedded into the story they're there on display it's in the dialogue they make a clear connection between the bombings and this force they reference real life occurrences visually and audibly so that you understand this is what we're getting at and that for me is where the longevity of this particular entity and character comes from is the the point to it i'm a huge fan of a film with a point to it (laughs) they don't all need to have a point to them but i will say Kong was a sensationalist film that was pretty much made to go, hey, look at the giant gorilla, do some cool stuff. Very Harryhausen mm-hmm, idea behind mm-hmm. it. Look at my special effects. Whereas Gojira felt to me like Honda's very smart instincts as a filmmaker to say, I'm going to market a movie that tells you it's sensational and is sensational. And I'm going to put a very important story in there and tell you or basically process my emotions through it and help other people do the same thing while also educating people who may have forgotten about this horrible event. More of that in my life would be wonderful. I like that. So, (laughs) and for me, I love when horror films decide to do that. And, you know, it's funny how we have this whole elevated term that comes around I think Gojira is a wonderful example to say, like, this is nothing new. (laughs) Exploring deeper things and themes in a film that is essentially about something else on the surface is nothing new. And it doesn't mean that you can't enjoy the surface. There are times I watch Gojira just to go, yeah, stomp it. Kill it. Do it. (laughs) And then there are times that I'm watching it to really feel the weight of what it's trying to say. Mm -hmm. That's your choice as a viewer. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I am so protective of what the original intent of Gojira was that I'm very Uh protective. And when, when I saw, like the Americanness start to trickle in right to trying to capitalize on Gojira it put a really sour taste in my mouth like I remember I being just like almost like offended at the let's say the 1999 uh, was it 99 yeah. I think 98 98 98 um Ooh. that was 
Yeah, that was like I was like, okay, now this is disrespectful. Because <laughs> yeah. I mean, I see what they they wanted to make some big movie with a big creature in it, but it could have not been called Godzilla. Like, come on, like, <laughs> like it just seemed like very kind of flippant. They were just like, oh, just pick. Well, we want to make a Godzilla movie, and this is how we want to make it, but like just completely throwing in the bin like everything that like Godzilla even means as yeah and even the even the new films uh, the american ones that are kind of more invested in the spectacle Mm-hmm. Like they're very pretty, like you know, they're very gorgeous. <laughs> they're really nice to look at. But in the back of my mind, I keep like Shingojira. Once we get there, we're gonna get there. Oh yeah, can't wait. Like, I have not seen it fully, and I'm gonna wait until time. Yeah. Um, when you have that juxtaposed to what the American movies are doing, it's just like wow, like a lot of American audiences because they haven't seen it or have no frame of reference for it, like really don't know what they're missing. <laughs> it's, it's like, mm. you know, how important and like how reverential I think we should be with the Gojira story. And like, if you're going to have quote unquote fun with it, I think be careful. <laughs> like, yeah, tread, I, I tread lightly, that. I guess. And at, least, at the very least, come back to it. That's what I think they did really mm. well in the show era was they got a little into parody territory and got, <laughs> yeah, yeah. had a little too much fun. You know, some champagne was was, was drank at some of these uh, premieres. And then uh, every time uh, Honda picked up one of those scripts, he was like, uh, yeah, but we're doing it this way. Because now I'm going to talk about xenophobia. Now I'm going to talk about uh, this disaster that people haven't heard about or you know then they put it in the hands of a, a newcomer and they're like pollution we have a pollution problem y'all mm-hmm. so they always mm-hmm. manage to give you this enemy of the of the film kind of formula while still managing to put some semblance of topical eco horror in there and although none of them really tread on territory the way this one did Apart from maybe the terror of Mechagodzilla, I think is when they kind of sparked, like, we really need to start getting focused again. I think they, of course, leave it to the progenitors, to Japan, to kind of know how to have fun with it more than just pure, we're going to make some money and not really care about what it had to say. And just forget all that. (laughs) Just slap a name on it, give it to you, and go. Uh, it It is a huge shame. Fortunately, we have this movie, and it is still beautiful and wonderful. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's a delight. So I am telling everyone, um, we've probably spoiled the film, but it's not the same as seeing it. Mm-mm. It's, I think, required viewing. Whether you're a sci-fi fan, a eco fan, a horror fan, like, or just a film fan in general. Like, this film yes. is in the criterion, like, for a reason. Yes, and... You all may have noticed this episode has gone pretty long <laughs> and there's still so much more to talk about. So I'm sure either we will broach more topics uh, when we eventually dive into Shingojira or maybe I'm just going to have to bring it up again in another season because it, it's so rich. There's so much I didn't talk about considering like the, the camera work and the set design, costumes, all of this. It's It's one thing to hear us talk about it. It's another thing to experience it for yourself. So please, if you can find a copy of it somewhere, if you can find it on streaming, like on HBO Max, 
check out the original Gojira. I think, though, uh, for now, we can wrap up. What about you? Yeah, this is a, this is a good place to end. Yeah. In which case, this podcast is a part of the Anatomy of a Scream pod squad. So be sure to follow the Anatomy of a Scream podcast page on your preferred podcast platform to check out more introspective, semi-academic, and fun podcasts, including 28 Days Later, hosted by Sophie and Hannah Day, XOXO Horror, and much more. You can find more info at anatomyofascream.com. And please support them. They're the whole reason this podcast exists the way it does today. So you're going to be supporting podcasts as they start and be part of their growth and their audience. And I know the wonderful people working there and show them your support. If you're interested in more of my musings on beauty and horror or just horror in general, you can follow me on Twitter, which is at underscore shockaholic. And you can find my website, which is shockaholic.org. So dear listeners, what are your thoughts on Gojira? I would love to hear about them on Twitter at beautyhorrorpod via email, which is beautyofhorrorpod at gmail.com or in the community space of our Discord, which you can find a link to in, on the Twitter page. I want to thank you again, Danny, for sitting down and having such a meaningful and thorough conversation about one of my all-time favorite films. Where can everyone find you and what do you have going on that you'd like to plug right now? Awesome. Uh, well, I uh, you can find me on Twitter only. That's the only social media I have, people. So um, <laughs> you can find me where the horror resides at the Danny Buffet, T-H-E-D-A-N-I-B-E-T-H-E-A on Twitter. And um, I'm currently working on some projects. I don't know if I should say what they are, but um, you can find me... Um, very soon in a collection called The Women of Jinji Kohan that um, delves into some of her work. I did a piece uh, in there about um, about Orange is the New Black and about mm. the black queer characters um, in the film and how they impacted the rest of the series going forward as far as viewership. Um, I don't want to spoil any more than that, but um, that's a must-read Um I, I've got some big things cooking. I'm trying not to, Ooh. trying not to unveil what they are. So <laughs> I'm always, I'm always up to something, and a lot of times I just can't say <laughs> until, until it happens. So I guess I can't say any more than that because I, will, I will be involved in some things that I will let everyone know about. So just stay tuned, okay? <laughs> so you've got to go to their social media on Twitter to keep an eye on these things. And I'm going to echo Danny here. Uh, when Danny says something is a must read, it is more of a must read than most things ever, but also everything Danny writes is a must read. So please check out Danny's work. You will not be disappointed. And I'm very excited about reading that thing about uh, Orange is the New Black because yes, yes, the topic is, that appeals to me very much. Uh, that, that is a topic for a, another podcast, I suppose, but all exciting things. Can't wait to see what you've got next. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us and talking about the beauty that lurks within the horrible. Goodbye. There's no